Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, I'm here with Andrew Solomon, who is a writer and lecturer on psychology, politics, and the arts, winner of the National Book Award, and an activist in LGBT rights, mental health, and the arts. He's the author of The Noonday Demon and Far From the Tree. Andrew, thank you so much for taking time to talk. What a pleasure to be here, Rabbi. So to, to jump in on one of the issues you, you deal with um, in regards to mental health, uh, that of depression, what, what is it you think we're learning more and more about depression right now during the, the, the challenges of the pandemic? Well, obviously, there's a great deal of depression around now. And as someone who has written about depression, I've been overwhelmed by the number of letters I've been getting from people who are struggling. Um, I've read that by some estimates, um, 30 to 35 percent of Americans are now experiencing symptoms of clinical depression and anxiety. And in the most affected age group, which is children between the ages of 11 and 17, up to 90% um, are experiencing symptoms of depression and up to 80% experiencing symptoms of anxiety. What's difficult when you have a situation in which so many people are suffering is to distinguish in any accurate and meaningful way between the discomfort and unease that are appropriately characteristic of facing this strange threat of having enormous economic duress for many people of being um, thrown out of your home or not allowed to leave your home. People are dealing with that and responding appropriately, but for many people that appropriate response then transfers into a clinical condition or a clinical illness. And I think what's really been demonstrated is that depression represents the intersection of a genetic vulnerability and triggering circumstances. And when the triggering circumstances become enormous, um, the rates of actual clinical depression become very high. Now, some people would propose that if the depression is being caused by the coronavirus, that the only solution to the depression is to wait for a vaccine and for our lives to return to some semblance of normality insofar as they ever will. But the reality is that the etiology of an illness should never dictate its treatment. If you have symptoms of clinical anxiety or depression, the appropriate response is to seek treatment, to seek therapy, to look at um, alternative treatments if you want to, and to use medication if that's an effective way of bringing things under control. And when the trigger is gone and we're on the far side of this pandemic, you can examine whether you have persistent depression or whether you've managed to control it and now that those circumstances have changed, it must be low. I mean, we didn't have good tools for measuring, but I think what was the rate of depression like in occupied France in the Second World War or in London during the Blitz or in any of these other situations? There have been times in history when people have expressed their depression. There have been times in history when people have held it in. 
but the depression itself is depression. And I always say that you can tell whether it's depression rather than just an appropriate response by the question of how it's affecting the rest of your life. Do you just feel anxious and concerned about what's happening? Or have you reached the point at which you wake up feeling anxious all the time? Do you feel sort of sad that this is going on? Or do you feel so depressed that you have um, stopped communicating with your spouse and your children? What is the point at which this has overflowed from the arena it appropriately occupies to an arena in which um, it's really damaging your ability to go on with your life? And people then say, well, maybe I can fight through it and I don't need treatment. And I always say to people like that, look, this is a very weird time, but it's part of your life. And it's a part of your life that you will never get back. And if you can be more functional in this period and feel better and be more, most of all, profoundly connected to other human beings in a time when isolation is to some degree the rule, then seize whatever the technologies or techniques are that allow you to sustain that human connection, even a connection to faith and to God. It's a connection that you establish and that you, uh, and that you strengthen and that should not be sacrificed on the altar of the pandemic. Yeah. Wow. That is so well said. And part of what I hope folks will hear from that amidst everything is um, if it is a problem, don't wait. We need to feel the urgency of addressing this situation um, for our own welfare, first and foremost, and for those around us. And that it need not be total crisis moment. We, we, can, we can see signs of that emerging in which we need to respond. So shifting from the area of our individual work, our individual work of maintaining our mental health, getting treatment we need, um, cultivating positive and healthy relationships amidst this, uh, this challenging time period, I want to shift to our collective work. Um, and our collective work of how can, how can or should activism look different in 2020? When the world is literally burning uh, with corruption, with climate change, rising hate, a public health crisis, economic instability. Um, the easy answer is, well, throughout all history, there were, these were problems and we always continue to, to, to struggle against these. But are there, are there things you think um, we ought to be doing differently um, in a time period like this in our, in our agitation and struggle for social change? Well, I feel like this time feels especially like Armageddon, which is not to say there haven't been other times that felt like Armageddon, but there's an awful lot that's wrong in the world and an awful lot that's wrong in our country uh, right now. Um, and I think it is a genuinely terrifying time. I mean, as a parent, one of the things that I find myself having to do with my children, um, who have all been dealing with a very changed life under COVID, is to try to separate out when they're expressing irrational anxieties and fears, and when they're actually responding to what the world looks like right now, which appropriately summons those anxieties and fears. In terms of activism, many of us are blocked from some of the conventional forms of activism by the medical necessity for relative isolation during the pandemic. It's hard to go on a march. It's hard to provide services to people. It's hard to go work in a homeless shelter if you're afraid of and vulnerable to infection. Um, but having said that, there are a million things we can do. I mean, I think we need first and foremost to vote 
and to get the current president out of office and to register people to vote and to ensure that when the elections take place, they are free and fair and just elections um, and that they are not tampered with. Uh, because I think changing the leadership of the United States or indeed, I'm afraid of about two thirds of the countries in the world would be the most effective way to deal with problems such as that range all the way from racism to corruption to climate change. And I think the other thing is to remain communicative, both with the people with whom we are ordinarily talking, our families and our close friends, and with a larger community. You know, I always think of the time that a gay activist said to Harvey Milk, what is the best thing that I can do to help the movement? And he said, go out and tell someone. And I think that the need is to make sure that these issues don't get shunted aside and don't get forgotten. So wherever it is that you're able to go, whatever the platforms are in which you're able to communicate, whatever it is that you can do without grave risk to your physical and mental health, do those things to try to talk about why these problems are urgent and how much they need to be addressed and changed. And then do selective boycotting if you can do selective boycotting. Don't use companies that are contributing to climate change. Don't buy beans that are made by someone who is supporting the Trump administration in its attempt to annihilate American democracy as we've known it until now. Those, I would say, are the, the primary ways to do it. And the minute you feel safe and you have a good N95 mask, get out in the streets and go door to door and tell as many people as you possibly can what the problems are and how they can be part of the solution. Very powerful. And so I think I heard three pieces to that primarily. There's the political process and the voting process um, and making sure leadership up top is, is uh, radically transformed. Uh, then there's relationships and conversations wherever possible. Um, and then thirdly, our, our, our consumer responsibilities to ensure we're not using our dollars to support. Um, and you said a lot more than that, but I think those three are really good boxes to think about this. Yes. Um, now, just one last question for you. Um, uh, you know, my assessment, and I, I, I assume others have said this, but I'm not sure, is that the LGBT rights uh, movement has by far been the most successful movement of the last decade in America. That's not to say there's not a ton of work still to do around homophobia and discrimination and the like. But if you look at how quickly we've, we saw change in ways that we haven't on other issues, the way the trans issue has been addressed in the last few years, again, still a long way to go. The fact that President Obama in his first term couldn't even be in favor of same-sex marriage, and, and then where we are year, just some years later. And I wonder if you agree with that assessment of that success, um, and, and if so, why you think it is, uh, what's been unique to this movement, whereas um, so many other movements continue to struggle. And I have my own, I have my own thought on that, but, but I'd rather hear from you. Well, I'd like to hear from you. So I'll go first and then you tell me okay. what you think. Okay, as someone who was involved, but peripherally involved as an ally, um, part of my assessment actually challenges my thinking. My, my normal thinking in activism is that we should um, agitate. Um, there's a level of agitation in our struggles. And yet I view um, uh, agitation as, as creating polarization today. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Whereas I have viewed the LGBT movement as a pride movement. Its primary orientation is towards a positive, positivity, love, change, pride of identity, rather than as an anger. That's not to say there's not anger there, but as an anger and as a confrontational agitation. And that challenges my own approach, but it's, it's kind of the conclusion I'm at so far. 
that's actually an interesting point, and it um, correlates with the fact that the initial attempts to get gay marriage through had to do with people going and talking to um, those uh, whom they were trying to convert and saying, the system as it exists is unfair, and the system as it exists is not equal, and so on and so forth. And as long as that was the narrative, there was very little progress made because people who had themselves perhaps not been comfortable with the idea of gay marriage, to take the most obvious example, those people felt um, attacked and criticized by the anger and the outrage and the demand for equality. And then the tactics switched and people started going and knocking on doors and saying, I've been with my husband for the last 15 years. We have an incredibly happy marriage. Here are some pictures of my children. Here's a picture of the wedding where I had my dad there and my mom there and where he had his dad and his mom. And as soon as it started being a story about accepting love, there was enormous progress made. And so I think you've hit on a very crucial part of the question. I would say there are a couple of other things that have helped. The first is to say that while it appears that um, there has been enormous progress in 10 years, and there has, it's sometimes not clear how much work went in in the 40 years before that, um, that there was a long period in which activism appeared to be getting nowhere, but that effort at activism made an enormous difference and was very much responsible for what has now appeared to be a rapid transformation. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, though I hate to provide any sort of positive comment on it, um, is the AIDS crisis. Because I think in 1960, very few people thought that they knew anyone who was gay. And many gay people themselves did not feel they knew anyone who was gay. And they went into straight marriages and relationships, or they lived very isolated and lonely lives, and they remained hidden. And the AIDS crisis forced gay people to come out. And all of a sudden, you found that there were gay people everywhere and that it represented a much larger proportion of the population than anyone had ever imagined. And so everyone knew gay people. And when people knew gay people, they had a much harder time saying, yes, you, this person I know, shouldn't have the same rights as I have. That was much harder than saying someone I don't know should have those rights. And it was striking to me when President Obama um, began talking about gay marriage that his focus was not on people's right to enjoy whatever kind of sexual and intimate relationship they wanted to. It was on children. And after the AIDS crisis, the next big movement among gay people was the gay parenting movement. Obama said, it seems unfair that there are children in my daughter's class at school whose families are treated differently from the way our family is treated. And it became a matter of injustice to children. And injustice to children is a much easier sell than injustice to people who were already perceived as marginal, who are by many people, at least at the time, were perceived as having made a choice, and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the shift into family structure gave people a way and a place and an occasion to relate. Fascinating. Andrew Solomon, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for yours. Friends, encourage you to look out for the very sophisticated and thoughtful works uh, from Andrew Solomon, which were mentioned earlier, and we will link to below as well. Thank you so much.